Well, thank you again for being here this morning. Don't worry, I've caught my breath, so I'm good now. Um, <laughs> but we're so glad to see you and to have you uh, with us today. So we are resuming our series called Exiles. So uh, last week for Easter, uh, I preached what I call a standalone message, uh, but now we're resuming right where we left off in our series through the book of First Peter. Uh, so today we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to there. Uh, and if not, that's totally fine. Uh, you can read along the screens. We'll have the uh, scripture for you. But we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2, continuing our series in verses 18 through 25. And before we dig into that, uh, let me pray again, but this time to ask the Lord that he would bless his word as we receive it. Would you pray with me? Lord, again, we come before you, uh, humble and ready to receive your word. Would you speak to us now through your Holy Spirit, through your word of God? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when we look at this title, I really want to bring our attention back. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in 1 Peter. Bring our attention back to exiles and focus on the significance of of this word, because the whole point of Peter's letter is that he is writing to Christians in an ancient world, uh, which is was Asia Minor and now is modern day Turkey, Christians who are scattered around that geographical area and region, and he's writing to them, and he's telling them, instructing them, encouraging them to live for Christ, even in a world that does not, that does not believe or accept the teachings of Christ. So Peter is addressing all kinds of issues. And basically, what we saw a couple of weeks ago, a shift in this letter, he now starts asking this question. Okay, so I've told you who Christ is. I've told you that you don't belong on this earth. Your, your true citizenship is in heaven with God. Uh, and so there's all kinds of, of factors at play here. But now Peter says, okay, so how do we respond how do we engage with this culture that doesn't honor Christ in very specific examples, right? And so the short answer to that question we saw two weeks ago in verse 12 of chapter 2. Peter said this. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, when he uses that word Gentiles, he means any non-Christian. That was the word Peter used to describe a non-Christian. So keep your behavior among non-Christians honorable basically is what he's saying. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in other words, Peter is saying to believers, he's saying, wherever and whenever possible, live a life of honor and respect and submission in your dealings with unbelievers in this world. Why? So that he says, so that they may be able to see your faithfulness, to see your witness, and perhaps that testimony from you will lead them to the truths of Christianity, will lead them to Jesus himself to put their faith in him for salvation. So two weeks ago, we looked at verses 13 through 17 leading up to this passage about what that looks like in our relationship to governing authorities. That's kind of the wider scope of society we saw. And now this week, Peter is going to get more interpersonal, right? So he's going to talk about interpersonal relationships with our superiors or our, our supervisors, particularly in the workplace, 
All right? And that's really the question that we're applying to our modern day context today. How do we deal with unjust treatment in the workplace? Now, listen, I know that's a really specific question, right? But hey, Scripture addresses really specific things. And so Peter is getting really specific here. So I hope this is practical and encouraging for you today. And let me say this. as we read, I want us to read verses 18 through 25 collectively right now as a whole. But as we read it, you're going to think, what does it have to do with the workplace? Well, that's a good question. There's a lot of historical context that we're going to have to bridge to modern day thinking. Uh, and we're going to attempt to do that today. But look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 25, if you would uh, read along with me. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now again, we're talking today about how do we deal with unjust or unfair suffering or treatment, particularly in a workplace environment. Now, when you read this passage, you don't see Peter talking about how to deal with the guy who works next to you in the cubicle who's super annoying, right? That's not what he's talking about. And I want us to be clear, the historical context here is vastly different than what we are talking about this morning You see, the word servant, right? The word servant here can also mean slave. But slavery during the first century in the Roman Empire was completely different than the way we normally think of, right? So we normally, when we hear that word, we normally think of uh, the evil and wicked part of American history or British history perhaps, right, when we think of slavery. But in the ancient Roman world in the first century, a slave or a servant lived in a household with a family, and it was, it was very, very different. It was much different. They lived in the house. Uh, they were well-educated. Uh, many of them could pay for their freedom as they earned money. Uh, some served as physicians for the family. Some served as tutors to the kids. Uh, some managed the estate, right? But they were kind of an indentured servant, right? They had to uh, pay off their debt or something like that, right? But, but still, let's be clear, they were not free people. They were not free people, and many of their supervisors or masters mistreated them very harshly, very unjustly. 
Now, one interesting thing to note here is that Peter, by even addressing servants of this kind on such a low step on the social ladder in that ancient world, by him even addressing them in a letter like this, is showing them honor and respect and bringing a sense of dignity and worth to them. And I think that's actually quite amazing because that's what the gospel does, right? Nothing else brings worth to human souls who were created in the image of God like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter, even by addressing them here, is showing that that is true because no one else in the ancient world would even have taken the time to speak to these lowly servants in society. So, Peter's talking to those who are Christians, serving in that way, finding themselves enslaved and and having to pay off some kind of debt or something like that, right? Peter is talking to them in their situation, right? He's, He's meeting them where they are. He's not affirming it. He's not saying this is good. He's saying, I'm just, unfortunately, since this is your situation, I'm going to help you understand how to live through it, right? So Peter wants to encourage them and help them to live for the Lord even if they're facing unfair or unjust suffering. So, what does that have to do with the modern-day workplace? Well, specifically, it doesn't necessarily, but I believe that it's good and proper to take the general principles we see from this ancient context and apply those biblical truths to a modern context, which we find ourselves in today. So I understand, trust me, this is a bridge right? We're bridging here from the ancient world to the modern world, but the truth is still the same, right? The truth is still the same. Okay, so that's the question I want us to seek to answer in our modern day context. How do we, living out these same biblical truths, how do we deal with unjust treatment in a workplace scenario? And by the way, this could be applied to almost any scenario, okay? So perhaps you're a student at university, and uh, maybe your professor is, you know, nagging you for being a Christian or, or not uh, accepting what you say in front of the class as truth, whereas he accepts something else someone else says is truth, right? It could, be, it could be that. It could be even in your own house. I mean, it could be almost any scenario, but because of Peter's context and what he's addressing, we're going to look at the workplace specifically today. So how do we deal with that? If we're trying to live a Christian life in a place where we're getting ridiculed and getting mocked for our beliefs, how do we respond? What do we do? Well, number one, I believe that Peter is saying here that we need to understand the reality that followers followers of Jesus will suffer. Okay, followers of Jesus are going to naturally suffer unjustly in this world, no matter if it's at work or hanging out with your peers or whatever. Look at what Peter says, though, about specifically in relation to a supervisor. He says in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. All right, so Peter is making it very clear, right? Some of these servants' employers, if you will, were treating them very unjustly, right? Very harshly in this ancient context. So to be very clear up front now, I want, I want to make this very clear before we go any further. 
When I say unjust treatment in our modern world, okay, because these people, some of them were, were facing actual beatings. Okay, that, this is some serious evil stuff going on in that first century, right? And we've seen it all throughout world history. But when I talk about unjust treatment in the workplace, in our modern context, all right, I am not talking about actual physical harm or any kind of harassment, okay? If that is where you find yourself today, you need to get out of that situation as quickly as possible, and you need to report it, okay? If that is happening to you, you need to get out because you are a free person living in a modern society. That's not the context we're in that Peter's addressing. So to be clear, we are talking about social ridicule and unfairness because you claim to be a Christian, all right? That's what we're talking about. So I want to give some examples. What does that possibly look like today in the modern workplace or other arenas of life? Well, let's say that, you know, your coworkers or uh, your supervisor is just making fun of you for being a Christian. You're, you're outspoken about your faith. You're not forcing it down anybody's throat. You're not, you're not you know, forcing people to lit. You're just, you talk about it. It's who you are. You're a believer. You follow Jesus. And so it comes up in natural conversations, but they're poking fun of you, right? You're the butt of all the jokes. Uh, maybe, you know, they call you names like Jesus freak or something like that. And hey, I mean, in the 90s, as a DC Talk fan, I'd have been like, yeah, I'm a Jesus freak, right? Um, <laughs> or, or maybe someone is just constantly arguing with you and kind of picking at you uh, about the claims that you make about Christianity and, and, and Jesus at work, and, and, and you're tired of the constant criticism and, and the arguing and debating back and forth, right? Or maybe you just have a boss like Michael Scott, right? And there's all kind of crazy things going on. And some of you are like, who is that? Just Google it, all right? Um, <laughs> or, or on a more serious level, you are being overlooked for a promotion or you're not included in important conversations with your team at work because your supervisor is not a Christian and they speak condescendingly to you because of that. Now look, I know all of us may not experience this, but some of us probably have or are currently, right? I've experienced this before. Not at the church, by the way. <laughs> but before, right? Before I was in ministry, I've, I've seen it. I've lived this out a little bit, I, so I understand. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are in this today. I hope you find this encouraging because what we're going to see is there is an illusion. There's an illusion out there among American Christianity that, you know, when I, when I sign up to become a Christian, so to speak, and I'm using that language falsely, when I sign up to become a Christian, I thought it was going to be easy, right? I mean, I, you know, I want to follow Jesus and, you know, I mean, following Jesus just kind of seems like the, the good Southern gentleman thing to do, right? So I thought that, uh, you know, there was going to be a relatively easy, easy and comfortable life that follows that. Right? And so I didn't, I didn't expect that I was going to face any kind of social ridicule or I didn't, I didn't uh, think that I was going to have to suffer in, un, in any way. Right? But see, that's an illusion that we believe that the Christian life is supposed to be nice and comfortable and easy and socially acceptable. That's an illusion. But in thinking like this, we undermine the actual cost of following Jesus that listen, that not that I'm telling you about, not that even Peter's telling you about, but that Jesus himself told us about. 
You see, Jesus himself told us, you could even say he warned us, what it would look like to actually live like him in a non-Christian world. In John chapter 15, for example, in verses 19 and, 19 and 20, look what he says. He says to his disciples, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then in Matthew 16, look what he says. He said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that's one of those statements that, you know, we love to put it on a nice canvas and hang it in our house or hang it somewhere in the church and just kind of read over it and say, that's right, if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. But let me tell you something. This is a weighty statement. This, this is a heavy statement. This was not something that tickled the ears of the disciples when Jesus was telling them this. This probably sparked all kinds of fear and anxiety in them when he told them that, hey guys, listen, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to live for me, if you're going to live like me in this world that hates me, then you might as well go ahead and pick up your cross because that's where this is heading. That's where it's heading for me. And if you really follow me closely, that's where it very well may head for you. You see, a cross in the ancient Roman world was an instrument of torture. It was like an electric chair, if you will. It was something that the Romans used to execute thousands of people in the first century. And so when Jesus says, you have to not just deny yourself, that's part of it, but you have to follow me through thick and thin, through all of this unfair, unjust treatment and suffering, that's the true call to Christianity. His disciples at that point probably thought, I don't, I don't know if I'm up for this. Look, Jesus, I mean, I had a nice fishing business on the side, and I was kind of thinking that, you know, you could help me out with some, you know, getting into some contacts and networking and possibly, you know, build my business because I'm a Christian now and that's cool, right? No, that's not, that wasn't the case in the first century, and we may think it's the case now, but it is not. So we need to understand the reality that true followers of Jesus will suffer unjustly not just because that's what we see currently in the world in different ways, in different forms, but because Jesus himself said, oh, it's going to happen. That's the first thing we see in this text this morning. But the second thing we see, and I believe Peter's telling us in terms of how we deal with unjust suffering in the world, in our personal, interpersonal lives and relationships, is number two, we have to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you really want to endure through this world as a believer, you've got to follow in his footsteps. That's exactly what Peter says to do in verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, and look what he says, so that you might follow in his steps. You might follow in his Steps, walking so closely behind your master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
so closely behind him that you're walking in his actual steps, in his footprints. That's the kind of imagery Peter is portraying here. Now, I think that we do this in two ways. All right? First of all, we have to actually obey his teachings. Right? So, so how do you do that? How do you follow Jesus in this world today? Well, number one, obey what he said to do. Right? Do what he said. So it's important to note that what Peter is saying here is based on something he's heard before. Right? So everything Peter's saying is something he has heard before, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But again, let's, let's just make sure we understand this. Here's what Peter's saying about this. Okay? He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For, this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God. Now that phrase is so important here, right? Mindful of God. That means that as you're enduring through some kind of mistreatment or suffering because you claim to be a Christian, the whole while you are mindful of God. You are thinking about how the God and creator of all things holds you in his hands. He's orchestrating history to work out for your good and his glory. And so even in those really tough moments, you are mindful of who he is and how much he loves you and where he's taking you and how he's using your life as a witness. That phrase, mindful of God, is packed with that kind of meaning there. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? Okay, now listen to this. Peter's repeating something here he's already heard. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, where's he heard this before? You see, Peter has heard that from Jesus himself. So now look at Luke chapter 6. You can look on the screens. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said to his disciples, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And then he says in verses 32 and 33, he says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You see, Jesus is saying, look, what is it showing the world? Right? What testimony of your faith is so evident to the world that may bring them to believe in salvation in, in Jesus? He's saying, what, what evidence is there if you're only good to the people who are good to you? Right? And if you retaliate, if you retaliate when someone treats you unfairly, what, what witness is that? That's not the evidence that God has loved you mercifully. And that's why Jesus says what he does in verse 36. He says there in Luke 6, 36, he says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You see, this is the, this is the crux of this truth right here. We can be merciful to people, even people we don't like. Even people that get on our nerves, or worse, actually treat us unfairly in our workplace or anywhere for that matter, we can show grace and mercy in the moment to those people. Why? Because we, we were enemies of God. We rebelled and basically committed treason against the king of the universe by loving other things more than himself, more than him, 
We were enemies of God, yet he loved us so that he died and gave up his life for us. See, that's mercy. We may think we know mercy, but not until we gaze into what Christ has done for us do we see true grace and mercy. You see, Peter is writing to us what he's already heard Jesus say. Think of the mercy you've received and how you didn't deserve it. Now go find someone who doesn't deserve mercy from you and show it to them. Do you see how countercultural that is? Do you see how that kind of testimony stands out in the world? That's the kind of stuff that draws people to the Lord. So the main call here from Jesus and Peter is, as Christians, we do not respond to ridicule and unjust treatment with just quick retaliation. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't retaliate, right? Because it's so natural for us to fight fire with fire, right? I mean, when somebody does something to us, we do it back to them, right? When your boss, you know, uh, mistreats you, you, you talk bad about him and you slander him at the water cooler to the others, right? Or perhaps uh, whenever, you know, somebody is, is, is talking and at work and, and just really, you know, nagging you for being a Christian, right? You just, you fire back, right? You fire back in this way that shows all you really care about is payback. All you really care about, about is wanting to maintain your social status. And so you want to get even, Right? You want to get even when we know something unfair has happened to us. But that is what Jesus is saying. That's just not, that's not the real Christian life. And that's not the way you've been treated by the Lord himself. Jesus and Peter are both telling us that there is a better way. There's a better way for Christians to live. We submit to our authority, we respect, and we endure. So, now at face value... Right? We should obey these commands to love our enemies, to good, do good to those who hate us. But there's so much more. Right? There's so much more that Peter needs to say here. That's why he doesn't stop. Now, I want to be really clear. If Peter stopped right, at verse 20, this is kind of, it's not complete. If, if, if he stopped at verse 20, it would just be kind of some good tips for managing workplace uh, you know, fruitfulness and a healthy work environment, right? But he doesn't stop at verse 20. He keeps going. And look what he says. Not only, do we, not only do we obey the teachings of Jesus, we look to his gospel for our example and our motivation. We look to the gospel for our example and our motivation. Look at verse 21. Peter says, For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. But isn't it interesting that Peter says this is a calling? Suffering unjustly is a calling? Well, that's not something I want to be called to. In my natural flesh, I want to not submit to that calling. Now, I want to be clear about what this does not mean. Okay, I had to define some things earlier. Right? Sometimes it's good to, to define what you mean by telling people what you don't mean. All right? well, here's what we don't mean, and he doesn't mean here. Okay, this is not a call to develop a martyr complex. All right? A martyr complex means that's when you start seeking out suffering to feel better about yourself. Right? So, so all of a sudden, everybody is causing you to suffer, and you just like that. makes you feel good. Right? That's not what Peter's saying here. This is not a call to start virtue signaling. 
All right? That's not what this is. In other words, making others aware of how virtuous you are by enduring the suffering. There's no pride here. That's not what Peter's talking about. But what he is talking about, what we must understand, and do not miss this, this goes far beyond the workplace into every arena of life. What we must understand is that the call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer. And I know that makes us a little uneasy when we hear that. I understand. But we cannot miss the truth that the call, Peter says, to follow Jesus is a call to suffer. But see, this suffering that Christians endure is not arbitrary. It's not random. It's not to no end for no purpose. It is not in vain. As you experience persecution for your faith in this world, and as you endure through it, something actually very beautiful is happening even in the midst of that tragedy. God is using your life as a bright and shining light, pointing people who may even be treating you unfairly pointing them not to some kind of religious facade, not to some kind of religious system. But when you endure ridicule and mockery and social ostracism because of your faith, your life, God is using that to point people, to point them to a person who has suffered unjustly for you, to himself. When we suffer as we follow in Jesus' footsteps, you see, we are pointing people to the greatest truth in human history, the truth of the gospel. The God of all creation has sent His Son to suffer unjustly so that we would not have to for eternity. That's the message we're showing in those very challenging and stressful, difficult moments. Look what Peter says in verse 24. This is what we're pointing people to with our lives, right? We're, we're just a big flashing arrow. It's not about us, right? It's, it's, we're a light shining on this truth. Verse 24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Someone else had to be wounded so that healing could actually happen in you. You see, Peter is, re is referring back to the greatest truth of human history that Isaiah mentioned and prophesied about in his chapter 53, which was a prophecy about Christ. Here's what Isaiah said. This is hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Isaiah prophesied and knew that there would be one who would suffer unjustly for the sins of the world to take away the ultimate eternal suffering. Look what he said. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Do you see the exchange there? One person gets crushed. One person gets beaten. One person gets wounded. But another lives and is healed because of that. You see, when Christ died on the cross, He bore our sins. It wasn't just some kind of transaction. It was, it was so much more than that. He bore them on Himself. He absorbed the wrath of God that should have been poured out on me. And He took it on Himself. And He suffered at the hands of wicked people unjustly so that I could live in true freedom, maybe not the freedom that the world defines, but so that we could live in true freedom. You see, this was not just to give us some kind of moral example. This was to give us a power. The gospel is a power that frees us to live for God and to live with this God consciousness about us that I talked about a minute ago, this mindfulness about us in the worst of circumstances. And the most unfair treatment and unjust suffering in those extremely difficult moments where your emotions are bubbling up and you do not know what to say or what to do or how to respond, in those moments, the power of Jesus' death and resurrection can become real in your thoughts and in your heart and in your mind. If you let it soak deep into your, into your soul and dwell on that truth that there is one who loves you and controls all things, who has already suffered. And He's done that so that you can endure by entrusting yourself in His hands because all of this is leading to something in the future that we can't even fathom. You see, this is why. This is why we can endure in this life because even in the midst of this, we are thinking about God and how in the end, all things will be made right. Let me say that again. In the end, in those moments of mindfulness of God and His gospel, we are telling and reminding ourselves, you know what? This stinks. But in the end, my God is going to make all things right. And so I don't have to retaliate right now. I don't have to stoop to their level. I don't have to play that game. In the end, my God is going to make all things right. So I'm going to pray for this person as much as I don't like them and as much as this bothers me and as much as I am ready to just give up and quit, I am going to pray that this person would experience the mercy and grace and love of God that I've experienced. And I'm going to show them that in the way I treat them. This is how Jesus wants us to think about our own unjust suffering. Verse 22 and 23, Peter says, He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, that's what we do. We look to Christ's example and to his gospel as our motivation, and we continue to entrust. We continue to entrust over and over. Because when beaten and mocked, when spat upon and made fun of, even when being tortured on the cross, 
Jesus, even in those moments, did not feel the urge or the need to retaliate or curse everyone because He knew the Lord was saving, that God the Father was saving the world through His suffering. You see, God used unjust suffering to save the world. In fact, it was the only way. You see, only a perfect sacrifice could be made for the world's sins. So it's not fair. It's not fair that the good and perfect creator of all things be sentenced to death. But you see, he was the only qualified person to do it. He was the only qualified substitute, right? To give us his perfect record of righteousness in exchange for our sin and wickedness. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, when he tells us to love our enemies, he is speaking to us who were his enemies, yet he still dies for us in our place. You see, our glorious king became a suffering servant. Think about that. Our glorious king emptied himself and became a suffering servant so that we may be able to endure the suffering of this world by entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. So what do we do? Well, the next time you're the butt of the joke, the next time someone questions your faith, The next time you experience serious hurt and ridicule because people know you are a Christian, remember, remember the suffering of Christ and how we are called to follow in his footsteps, all for the reason that he may get the glory and an unbelieving world may just end up believing because of you. You know, I think it's good and proper for all of us to really do some self-analyzation right now and ask the Holy Spirit to convict us. I think we just have to ask ourselves a simple question. Am I a person who just responds with retaliation? And hey, look, maybe it's not in the workplace. Maybe it's in your own home. Maybe it's just to your friends and normal conversations, but... Is retaliation your first go-to? Is that where you run? Fire with fire. Apple to apples. Do Do you just do whatever the person has done to you? Do you treat them back that way? Is that your life? Is that characterized who you are? Or, like Christ, are you saying, you know what? I don't like this. This is not right for you to talk to me and treat me this way, but I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to endure this because I know that the Lord wants to show his grace and his mercy through me to you. I think it would be helpful for us and extremely crucial that we pray and that we pray and ask the Lord to think through this. This is difficult. This is challenging. And it's always going to look different with every person's life. It's a case-by-case kind of basis, right? But there's this general principle and truth that we entrust ourselves consistently as we endure. Would you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord to help us do that. Lord, we are so thankful that you have been merciful to us. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we were your enemies. We ridicule you every time we sin. Every time 
we go against your plans and your design for our life, we ridicule you, Lord. We might as well be driving the nail through your hand on the cross ourselves. Yet, consistently, never failing, you love us. When we come to you in repentance, Lord, you forgive us and make us anew. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you who do, who judges justly. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you and follow in your steps as we endure unjust suffering in this world, knowing that you are the God of all creation and you one day will make things right. This is not easy. There's so much to think about. Holy Spirit, give us grace, give us wisdom, give us direction. Help us to be not people of retaliation, but people of mercy. Help us in this way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.